On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about City Hall and red tape. I know, shocking to believe that it could exist, but local architects are saying that the time it's taking to get stuff through for the pre-process, before you even get to the process, way too long, and they're asking the city to speed things up. We'll explain what that means and what they're actually wanting. And then we chat Raptors, we chat Canadian Open, and... You know, the Stanley Cup finals are still on. You didn't? Ah, don't worry, you're not alone. Nobody does. But yeah, there's a Game 7 coming up. We'll do all that with Don Robertson as well. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We've heard for a long time now, uh, it has been a well-worn mantra that people have latched onto happily about the rebirth and revitalization of this city, especially in the downtown, how things are getting better, how things are cleaning up, how there's construction, how there are buildings going up, condos, lots of cranes in the sky, lots of new stuff. That's, I believe, all true. Uh, However, the Hamilton uh, Burlington Society of Architects says things could be better, maybe much better. Again, we'll find out in just a moment. City staff, it says, is slowing down the process with delays and red tape, which, of course, Sounds nothing like anything that could ever happen in a bureaucracy, right? That could never be the case. Red tape? Come on. Anyway, uh, apparently it doesn't just happen here, but we are dealing with it and it is a problem. I want to bring in Kyle Sloat. He is an architect, a Thier and current architects. Uh, he joins us now. Kyle, thanks for doing this today. Hey, Scott. Thanks so much for having me. Thrilled to do that because this does seem like one of those things that I think for a lot of people who aren't even in your position, just from the outside looking in, it's one of those things that drives people nuts because they hear about red tape. They hear about things slowing down progress all the time, whether it's in building permits or something else. This seems to fit that narrative. Sure. I mean, it's definitely a frustration amongst our clients. Um, They've got dreams. They've got visions of of what they'd like to do. and, And we're trying to help them achieve that and uh and they're not often planning for that uh sometimes one two year slowdown um before they can actually get a shovel in the ground dreams and and visions and money to spend as well which which is probably the key thing there are dollars attached to to that time and uh every dollar not spent on the project that's spent on these processes means often the quality of the project has to has to come down whether it's the the finishes the bricks the cladding um, that money's got to come from somewhere. And I assume that many of these people, the, there is a pie and you have to slice out pieces of the pie. You don't just grow the pie. If there is a pie of $20 million for a project and it drags on, you don't say, oh, well, we'll just spend 22 Whatever money you take for all these delays comes out of that building. Sure, that's, that's absolutely true. There, there's only so much money uh, out there uh, that clients have available uh, for these buildings. So... Um, yeah, if they're, if they're spending it on delays and processes, then, then it's not getting spent on the finished product. Which is money to builders, to workers, to the city, really. I mean, with taxes and things like that. What happens, Kyle, walk me through this, because obviously I know nothing about architecture except the general idea of what an architect does. I, I, um, what, what has to happen before a builder gets a permit to start construction sure. in this so, city? So the process we're actually looking at most closely right now is what's called the site plan approval process. So this is before you even get to the building permit stage. And so this is an initial submission to the planning department of the city that looks at everything to do with the public realm of the, of the project. So they're looking at things 
as specific as how Canada Post will deliver to it, how waste will be collected, uh, to bigger things like the zoning. Is this building allowed to be constructed in this part of city? Does it meet the zoning that's been laid out? How will it affect transportation? Forestry gets involved uh, in terms of trees on the site and trees to be removed. So it's a fairly comprehensive process, but it's that first step um, that most projects, so we're not talking single-family homes or duplexes, we're talking larger multi-residential, institutional, commercial projects have to go through uh, before they can get anywhere even close to submitting for a building permit. So you've already then thrown a wrench into what I thought was happening, which is not, <laughs> I don't think, what I'm happening. Because then this, what you're saying is this is not the process that someone at the city is reviewing the architect's drawings to make sure this building is going to stay standing. This is other stuff that they will do before this. This is to do with the site. So uh, looking at how the site is planned, how um, parking and vehicles and pedestrians will move in and around the site. Uh, if we have the services for stormwater, how, how stormwater will be treated on the site and off the sites all these sorts of technical and design issues. See, because I, I think many people, if they had thought, as I initially did, Kyle, that this was about what the bureaucrats or the people at the city are looking to make sure, as I say, the, the building's not going to fall over, I think a lot of people would say, hey, take all the time you possibly want or need to do that. Well, I mean, and this is why we hire um, top-notch licensed structural engineers to, to make sure the buildings don't fall down. And certainly uh, those aspects get reviewed once we get to the building permit process in the building department. Um, but before we can get there, it's often one year, 18 months, two years in a site plan approval process uh, before we even get to that stage. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about the city of Hamilton and building uh that would be, I would think, for a lot of people on its face, a dry topic until you start realizing the impact that we have in the city, that building has in the city, the tax money that it brings in, the jobs that it creates. And architects are now saying, architects from this city are saying the process, just to get the process going, the pre-process almost, is really lagging, is really dragging things down and must be much, much better. Kyle Sloat is an architect in town. He joins us now. And Kyle, you, you said just before the break that sometimes this process, and again, we'll call it the pre-process, even before you get to the building permit, can take up to like 18 months. How does that compare to other cities? So unfortunately here in Canada in general, we, we've got statistics to show that we're not very good at making this a quick process. So most of the comparators we have are Canadian we know we're doing better to Toronto than Toronto, but that's really um, comparing to, to one of the longest jurisdictions that are out there. Uh, our firm has had great experiences with some smaller municipalities across Ontario, uh, Haldeman County, City of St. Thomas, where, where we're getting SPA site plan approval in 30 to 60 days, which from our point of view is a more reasonable time frame. So is that a case of Hamilton's uh, office, Hamilton staff being just so overburdened they can't do it? Or is it a case that there are just so many rules that we would be better off to try and remove some of those? I think it could be a combination. It's a complex issue. Uh, it deals with many different departments at the city. Um, the planning department are the ones who are sort of the gatekeepers of the process, but it, it ends up affecting many different departments. 
I think there's definitely uh, an issue that the scope of this process has, has gotten too large uh, and that we need to apply some, some bigger picture thinking to it about what is the public benefit that we're looking to achieve, uh, what is the impact from the beginning to the end of the process, what change is it affecting, and is that worthwhile uh, when you weigh it against the time and the cost. So in other words, uh, we are putting, uh, and tell me if I'm misspeaking or misquoting what you're saying here, but we are creating or demanding too many things, and some of these things we could probably put aside until we get the thing built? In, in a lot of ways, yes. Every project has its own specifics. Um, a frustration that we have during this process is often it feels like the, the finish line or the goalpost gets moved on us. So we think we're just about there, and then, oh, there's another study, there's another drawing, there's another document that suddenly we have to generate, have reviewed, uh, and get approved before before we get to that actual finish line. Okay, and for you as the architect, and you're only part of the process, but you're a big part of the process, you put this thing forward, you try and get your site plan approval going, and all of a sudden you find out that Canada Post is going to be a challenge or that there are trees that are in the way. Like, are, are there things, it sounds like there would be things that are completely out of your control to do with this. Sure. I mean, so we're, we're generally a prime consultant of a team made up of uh, ourselves as architects and the designers, as well as a landscape architect, a civil engineer. We'll get an electrical engineer involved if we have to do a parking lighting layout. So there are a lot of folks involved, but we're going in knowing the site. We've already done investigations. We've had surveys completed. We've studied the zoning bylaws. So it's not like we're going in with a stab in the dark. Uh, we're going in knowing what's what's appropriate for this site and, and what's reasonable and, and where we're going to need variances and, and things like that. Um, so it, it's, it's a process that's... Um, you know, the Planning Act mandates that within 30 days, a site plan approval should be uh, completed and approved or refused for good reason. And and if that were the case, you know, we'd be finishing these significantly quicker than we are. But Kyle, if you're going in to some of these sites, I'm assuming, unless you're negligent, and I'm certainly not suggesting you are, or any other architectural company, but if it, okay, if you, if you have not done any of the work ahead of time, I get it. But I'm assuming, as you say, you're going in and you're finding these things out way ahead of time so you know what the circumstances are going to be. Presumably, then, you're not running into 45, 50, 60 different violations of these things, so it should be able to be done quicker. Sure. I mean, you would certainly hope so. I mean, there are certain elements to do with tying into the city's services, um, fire hydrant flow, and these sorts of things that until we get into the process in the city, um, these conversations begin and these, this information is supplied, um, you don't always have every piece of, of those aspects. Um, but certainly at face value, it's, um, it feels like it should be a little simpler than it is. So how do we do that? Because there's got to be, if, if we're going to say that it should be, how do we do it? Absolutely. So uh, some of the recommendations that came out from our provincial association, the Ontario Association of Architects, are to make the process predictable, to assign defined timeline, timelines for that initial review within the 30 days that the Planning Act requires. And, and if approval can't be granted at that time uh, and additional info is needed or changes are needed, assign timelines to those resubmissions as well. So it's just not an open-ended process, um, but, but it's clear we can tell our clients 
okay, it's going to be about 30 days till we hear back. And once we hear back, uh, we know exactly where we're going instead of it just carrying on and on and on, um, getting into the minutia and the, the micromanagement of we need this note changed or, um, you know, this tree moved here or there and then delaying it another month, another month, another month. I wish we had more time. Uh, Kyle Slot, I really appreciate you taking the time today to do this. Uh, Kyle Slot, who is an architect again um, with uh, Fear and Current Architects here in town. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Scott. Uh, you know, as I say, we, I, I am sympathetic to City Hall for sure, because I do know there is pressure on, but if this is something that we are really, and, and I don't, you know, if you've been listening to the show for any period of time, I am not lobbying to hire more people to work at City Hall, but surely there's something in the middle where we can maybe drop some of the unnecessary red tape, unnecessary bureaucracy that doesn't affect public safety that could get something like this moved along if we are truly arguing that we want to encourage development and and encourage building in this city. Because I am positive, even though I haven't looked at it, I would bet you money that not every single thing that goes into this is a public safety thing. Safety, yes. Other stuff, maybe we can move some of that along to make this thing happen more quickly. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don Robertson, owner-operator of ComChoice Realty in the greater Dundas region. Dundas Real McCoys. Part owner, builder of the JL Greitmeyer Arena. (laughs) Or at least butt kicker to get JL Greitmeyer Arena built. Looks pretty good now. Yeah? Yeah, it's coming. The city has promised that no later than the 2047 season, people will be playing in the JL Greitmeyer Arena once again. Uh, did you? Uh, where do you want to start today? Raptors, Canadian Open, not much. Stanley Cup Finals. What do you want to do? Where you? You tell me <clears throat> where you want to start today. Let's talk about the golf tournament. All right, it was a pretty big event in our city. It is a pretty big event, and I, I've said it on this station. I was on with Bill this morning. I was on with Scott this afternoon. I don't think there is an event that we host on occasion that makes the city look as good as the Canadian Open does. Nope, it's uh, it's quite a showpiece for our uh, community and. When you're showing such a spectacular golf course like the Hamilton Golf and Country Club, it sure doesn't hurt. Um, the Grey Cup's big. It'll be big news when it comes here, but it'll be big news in Canada. And this was, a, a, at minimum, big news in uh, North America and probably in big parts of Ireland. Huge in Ireland for two and, reasons. And um, the rest of Europe. So Two, two reasons sure. in Ireland. One, Rory McIlroy, and two, Graham McDowell, who... yeah. By sinking, people were people couldn't understand. Anyone who was watching the whole thing, a lot of people couldn't understand why McDowell, who was not in the running to win this thing, reacted so over the top when he sunk his putt on 18 to finish the tournament. I mean, he fell to his knees and looked like he had just won the Masters. It's because when he sunk that putt, he got high enough in the standings that he got an exemption into the British Open, which is going to be played on his home course. That oh. was That was an immense putt for him to sink. And so, again, people didn't really get it. But in, in Ireland, that was another storyline. So, yeah, th- this was being watched all over the world. It was, uh, I was there Sunday, um, drove by the fairgrounds every day, and parking looked very efficient. There were enough uh, buses back and forth. It, it, uh, I'm sure we can find people who will complain, but, boy, it seem, seemingly went off without a hitch 
walked down the fairway Sunday uh, that was not in use, obviously, uh, where the concert took place, and there wasn't a wasn't a piece of paper on the fairway or in the rough, and it looked like you could play on it. And if you couldn't play on it yesterday, it'll be playable uh, by the time the band shell's gone. So there'll be some <clears throat> members um, that'll be frustrated, but uh, they made an announcement they're going to spend $11 million to clean the place up a bit. And I, for the life of me, don't know how you can spend $11 million fixing a place up. I think you build a well, because they're building a new track. They're they're redoing all the greens. They're redoing most of the tee boxes. They're putting in new irrigation. They're taking out and fixing and changing a bunch of the bunkers. They're doing a lot of stuff that I, I, I guess over time you need to update things and fix things and make them change the grass and do all kinds of things. But, you know, it's, here's, I could not help thinking this, this week while I was up there. And of course, any member who's listening right now is probably going to have an aneurysm when I say this. But when I walked uh, three years ago, Augusta National, when Mackenzie Hughes was made that made the Masters, and I was down there for that. And I'm not comparing the two, although there are some comparisons. I mean, obviously Augusta is Augusta. But one of the things you notice is that almost all of the infrastructure that is there that we had at the Canadian Open this week down at Augusta is permanent. Yeah. So the TV towers and the scoreboards and the most of the grandstands and all those things, they are permanent fixtures, which means that if you were to put those in and the Canadian Open, that the Golf Canada is looking for, yeah, if a home, not a, a permanent home, home uh, the, the, the members of the Hamilton Golf and Country Club, it's always a hard decision to say yes to this because they have to give up their course for two or three or four weeks in the middle of golf season, which is short. But if all the infrastructure is permanent, so you don't have to have people rolling in trucks all the time to build this stuff. If you just said, we need the course for four days beforehand and the week of the tournament, and by the way, here's a million, two million dollars, whatever it is, into your course for use of it. I couldn't help but think that that would be a really interesting concept. Now, I don't, I don't believe for a second that the membership would go for that because they don't want to give it up every single year. No, but if you were, you were giving, you know, if I would have to think, boy, I don't hate talking about things I don't know about, but I'm good at it. Um, <laughs> that if you were going to have it six out of 10 years, if that would make Golf Canada want to put in a lot of the infrastructure on a permanent basis. And then it's there. You can't. I don't think you can truly call it a Canadian Open if you're not prepared to take it east, west, or move it. But a they don't little, want to. A little bit. They're it, trying to keep it in the GTA now. They want yeah, but it. But there's a difference. Keeping it in the GTA and keeping it in one place, although I do, that does hammer my argument about whether you're going to take it out west or not. And I would think you'd make an argument, although the date change seemed to really work, uh, hence Rory McIlroy and uh, the RBC sponsored players are all coming if they have the thing in December. They don't have a choice in it. But if they were ever going to have it on the West Coast, it would be more interesting to see if it was in a track at Vancouver, if that would have attracted more people because this week's uh, U.S. Open is at Pebble Beach. Maybe, maybe. But I, lo I, I look at this and, and Augusta is the only major that is held at the same place every year. 
because the U.S. Open moves around, the British Open moves yeah. around, or the Open, if you will, and the, the players. But, it, you know, you there is precedent with Augusta. And if you had the infrastructure built here, and, and I go to this only because it worked so well this week. And you look at what it did for Hamilton, and you look at the number of people that came into the city and the money that was spent here and the good vibe and how it makes Hamilton look to the rest of the world and to North yeah. America. If you could do that, and you could do it in a way that wouldn't cause the members to lose two or three weeks of golf every year, man, I, I, to me, and, and like it would require Golf Canada to pay the money probably because the membership isn't going to want to build this stuff. And again, I don't, I, don't, I don't think Hamilton Golf and Country Club members would want to do that. But if you're going to spend $11 bucks on upgrades and you could have a permanent home and bring in a million or two every year, that would help. Well, I, I, I don't know the math, but if you started telling the members that their dues were going to be 40% of what they are right now. Or frozen for the next 10 years. Yep. Yeah. I think a reduction's a better sell, but I don't, I don't know the math, right? But the, there's always things you have to do on the course. Let me ask you something else, though, because as I say, I mean, that, that, was, that was a pipe dream that I looked at and I thought, you know, for the city of Hamilton, that would be a tremendous thing that this suddenly becomes... When you think of the Canadian Open, we've had Glen Abbey essentially like this, but Glen Abbey has never been a course that the players have loved. The players rev- rave about this course. Webb Simpson on Saturday, I think, after his round said this was one of his two favorite courses on tour. Um, and he's not the only one who said stuff like that. The players rave about this course. Well, they have to play golf. I mean, they can't just grip it and rip it. I mean, we were on one hole, and, you know, I've played there. And I'm going, how are they going to? How is this hole going to work? So I go back to where uh, lowly golfers like I would tee off, and I'm walking up, and I said to Sue, well, there's the tee. And then I go up. They're hitting from, and I don't know the numbers of the holes, but uh, the members will correct me if they're listening. They're, they're using a tee from a par three going over the pond for the 15th, I think it would be. I think it's the 15th hole. And Suze looks and says, they're going to hit it. Like there's a green to the left, and there's a grandstand behind it. Now, there isn't a human being in that grandstand that would be safe if I was playing there. And these guys are... Well, you, l- probably, you and I probably wouldn't reach it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, they, they would be in danger on about my third shot. But <laughs> That's true. I mean, the one guy launched it over top of the grandstand. So, I mean, that's just how spectacular these guys are and, and the different uh, like I say some of the tees that they use aren't tees for the hole that they're playing on today right because they have to make the thing so long yeah no it's off the tips they said they have PGA PGA tee boxes that members generally don't use there's the the juniors and there's the women's and there's the men's and then there's the PGA ones and some of the members will go back there and use it but more often than not it's 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 too difficult. I, I'd have trouble getting it to the ladies' tees on some of those things. But anyway, the place was beautiful. I, I like the uniqueness, the creativity of the hockey hole. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, pounding on the rink boards and Golf Canada are doing a good job. And Hamilton um, and the Hamilton Golf and Country Club should be very proud of themselves. Yep. And, and the food in the clubhouse Sunday was fabulous. I ran into Mac. He's lining McKenzie up to Hughes, eat. Yep. Mackenzie Hughes. He's lining up to eat, and I saw him when I walked in. So I got thinking, well, uh, I wasn't sure how to say hi. So and it was he was the only one at the buffet. 
So he's just picking up a plate and grabs. So I walk and stand in front of him, and he kind of steps back and looks at me. And I know what he's thinking, but he's far too polite to say anything. And he looks over and sees it's me, and I, I won't tell you what he said. But I said, did you want to go down here? But he's such a – they all are. Mac, uh, McKenzie has become such a professional and such a quality guy. He's very articulate. He's funny when he throws on the Raptor shirt at the uh, hockey hole. And he's very generous. And, uh, you know, he sat and quietly had lunch and, you know, a bunch of people. Yeah. And he didn't go into the players' lounge where they, you know, the fa- family and friends can go and eat. He sat out in the patio and looked out over the golf course. And, boy, it's uh, it, it makes you pretty proud to know that he's from Dundas. Yeah, no, uh, he's... I wish he'd have had a better day, like him. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it was uh, – and, and he has become, around here especially, he has become a fan favorite. When he came up on 18, I mean, it was yeah. loud. It was very loud, and it was great. Now, let me ask you, because you say about the fact that these guys are all so professional. I want to ask you something that happened on the Tuesday or the Wednesday. I can't remember what. But the day or two days before any PGA tournament, they bring some of the biggest name players in for, you know, it's, it's a short seven or eight minute press conference. They'll take five or six questions. And there's almost, from my experience, there's almost never anything that is earth shattering. No one ever walks up there and says, hey, I'm just here to tell you that my wife and I split up and I'm really disappointed. Or, you know, like nothing, there's nothing that would, it's, it's stuff like, what do you think about this course? Or do you like Hamilton? I mean, it's all the, you know, whatever. So Brooks Kepka. Great player. Uh, maybe, is he number one in the world now? He's up in the top few Was uh, before the tournament. Uh, comes in and says, yeah, I'm here because I'm trying to tune up for the U.S. Open next week. Scores don't count. How I do really doesn't matter. Don't really care. Rory McIlroy comes in and says, I'm, I'm tuning up for the U.S. Open as well, but this is a national championship and, and some great players have won this and it's a prestigious event and I would love nothing more than to put my name on that trophy with some of those great players. You're listening to this and you're going, it's almost like Kepka is trying to be a villain. Because you don't say that stuff unless you're intentionally almost not caring or want to tick people off. But my, my, my thought when he did it was he could have thrown out a few plaudits, mindless, empty plaudits that just would have tempered his comments. But do we want athletes to say what they mean and be honest, even if it comes across as harsh or villainous, or do we want guys to butter everyone up and give people what they want? Well, nobody writes about the things when everybody says the same thing. You know, I've been told wonderful things about the Hamilton Golf and Country Club, and it's my first visit to Canada, and I'm so excited. Um, they don't shoot out that the snow's gone or... It's really cold. I mean, you know, you, you, can, it was. you, you can script them. Uh, it's hard to find fault with what he said when you ask him a question and want the truth. That's what I mean. Do but, you want the truth or do you want yeah. what you want to hear? Rory uh, McElroy is smart enough to know it's one of the third oldest tournaments in North America. and But he's also got the British tie. And I want to say, by the way, when I say when I compared the two, I did not get the sense that McElroy, when he was speaking, was just buttering everybody up. Yeah, he wasn't scripted. He believed it. I legitimately took that he believed that, but I also legitimately believed that Kepka really was here to tune up his game and wasn't going to be crying if he left without the trophy. So Well, well, he didn't. And he didn't. Almost didn't make the cut. McElroy, 
Um, it's a long way to come not to make the cut, right? But you get four rounds in, and if he wins the U.S. Open for the third straight time, he'll say, hey, the Canadian Open was perfect for me. I practiced a bunch of stuff, and I was working on a bunch of stuff and couldn't care less. Yeah, I don't imagine if he wins next weekend, he's going to say, I'd like to thank the people at the Hamilton Golf and Country Club for getting me ready to do this. That would be pretty spectacular. But Rory knew his stuff. I mean, he talked about the different people that had won it. and his, uh, This is during the press conference and yep. when he won it. Yep. Like, he did his homework. He knows who's won the Canadian Open. He knows some of the big names that have won the Canadian Open, and he's happy to be a part of it. And I think he's a pretty sincere guy. He's just, he, boy, he's... Uh, He's in, he's in great shape, but he's, in, he's just a little guy. He's eh? very diminutive. Holy cow. Yeah, if you didn't know. Because TV makes everybody look big. TV, oh, I don't get on TV. No, I don't mean that kind of big. <laughs> oh, thanks, Scott. <laughs> Talking about buttering people up. <laughs> TV makes everybody look like somehow a giant. That you when you see them, you expect them all to be yeah. bigger than life. And... I don't know if you came across Mike Weir. Mike Weir is the size of either of our thighs. Like, he is a small man. He really is. He hits at a mile. Yep. And he's a great golfer. I mean, he's struggling these days, but there is nothing to him. And there's a lot of guys like that that are maybe 5'9", 5'8", 5'10". You expect them to be big. They're not. Yeah, well... I met, uh, had an opportunity w- with Jason Dalio. When he, Jason had uh, John Daly at a tournament, he used to run down at Thundering Waters in Niagara Falls. And the first day I met uh, John Daly, I really expected to walk up and say hi to a Paul Bunyan like kind of a guy. And Daly's not a big man either. I mean, he was, his girth was big, but it's not like he was 6'2 or 6'4 or some monster guy. He just had a swing that would rip it and, send it hopefully down the fairway, and if not, into another county. You know, he's, <laughs> he's the one that tried to hit it from Canada to the U.S. with a golf ball. Yeah, Dustin Johnson is big. He's 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 a big uh, man and a big, strong guy, too. Uh, it, and the great one wandered around a little bit, as you uh, Wayne pointed Gretzky out. was there, yeah. and Janet was there, and Paulina was there, and Keith Gretzky was there, and a bunch of different people. You know who else I ran into? This is a name that most people will not remember, I'm guessing, but back in either 2003 or 2006, when it was early on when it was back here, there was an amateur from this area named Victor Chichelsky. Yep. He was a star the first day. And he showed up that first time, I think it was the first time, wearing checkered- From Guelph or Waterloo or something. Cambridge. Cambridge. Cambridge, with checkered pants and a Herb Tarlick white belt and white shoes, and he had long, shaggy hair, and got a hole-in-one on number 13. And he was like the poster boy, the yep. star of the tournament. Anyway, bumped into him yesterday, recognized him walking around, which I'm shocked that I did because he's got all of his hair. He's, 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 it's close, neat haircut now, not like it was before, and no crazy pants and nothing else. He missed the cut to play in this one, he said, by two strokes from qualifying. Otherwise, he would have been back. But Is he a pro golfer still? He's still playing golf. I think, I can't remember if he's a pro or not. But, so am um, I, but... There's a slight difference. Yeah, there is. He's taller. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's the primary difference between the two of you. Yeah. <laughs> Those three inches, I tell you, <laughs> if you were standing side by you side know. from behind on the golf course and watched you both hit, the only way I could distinguish between you and the pros is that he was three inches taller. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don Robertson. Uh, is in studio. Uh, Raptors game tonight, Don. Game five could be the clincher. However, 
Dun, dun, dun. Kevin Durant. One of arguably the top two or three players in the world appears to be ready to make his comeback. The Darth Vader of the Golden State Warriors. Does this change anything for you? Does this cause great angst that this is going to be the end of the Raptors run because suddenly they're going to be outmanned? By all accounts, uh, Durant would be um, better than some of the starting five for Golden State if he's 50%. I mean, the guy is considered to be that good. If if it does nothing else to the Raptors except cause a big distraction, it could be a factor. You mean in favor of Golden State? Yes. Okay. Like if and Ra- by the way, there's just a tweet that is out that Steve Kerr, the coach of Golden State, has announced officially Kevin Durant is playing this evening. Um, you know, it's it's like if Gretzky played in his heyday, you know, and he's got a bad ankle. But if he can play the power play and do some different things, the, the difference here is in basketball, and, uh, and they haven't asked me to help them coach, but if he's got a bad calf, and obviously it does because it's the finals and he hasn't played yet, and there's, so there's two things coming into it. First of all, I'd make him run as much as he could because if he stands around, the guy can shoot on one leg. I mean, he's pretty uh, Michael Jordan-esque, if you will. But if they can keep him moving around, and you would think if he was – you can't think he's 100% because if he was 80%, they kind of needed that game the other night they got hammered in. And the Raptors really dominated the second half of that game. So will he be a factor? It will depend on his health. And even if he's 100%, which you can't presume that he was close to 100% the other night and didn't play, but he's going to play because he's probably a competitor and wants to play, um, how effective will he be because he hasn't played in a month? If this was 1970s hockey, the first thing somebody would do would be punch him in the calf. <laughs> they would, yes. Or football, uh, maybe even baseball with a slide into second base. I don't think that anything will be done to try to aggravate that calf, except as you say, because that'll be one of the things, you, oh, you know what, anytime he has to do anything, is he going to stretch it? I, I'm with you. Make him, make him run, make him work really hard to get away from coverage. Start, stop and start a lot. Like I, I am not a proponent of intentionally going out to injure a guy who's got an injury. But if you can, if you know that injury is there and you can make him work and that could slow him down or re-aggravate it by himself within the confines of the rules of the game... That's fine. If he's not 100% and you can do something within the rules of the game that might cause him to aggravate it, I don't, and as I say, that's a lot of stopping, a lot of starting, a lot of moving around. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think there'll be a great strategy by the Raptors. Well, you're, you're so much nicer than I am. Well, you'd go out and kick him in the, th- in the calf. <laughs> no, I wouldn't kick him, but I'd have a couple guys trip him. When you're talking about winning an NBA championship, it's not like they come along every 15 minutes. So I mean, you take your 13th guy on the bench and f- you start him and for the first three minutes say your job this game trip him. is to make sure he is hurt before the three minutes are done. Every time. <laughs> take your fouls, lose the six points. Here's the other theory behind him perhaps playing. And and uh, I didn't finish medical college, but I'm sure somebody at Golden State knows what's going on. If an injury like that and you sit down and have a frank conversation and say, it's not healed. If I play and re-injure it, I'm does, done. Does it do permanent damage, or will I be able to start the season next year? And they say you're going to be out for two months. Well, you know what? Give it a whirl. 
Because if it's not going to create any permanent injury or make for someone having to have surgery, and lots of guys in the National Hockey League and the NBA here after the playoffs are done, they're now getting surgery on their thumb, they're getting surgery on their ankle, their wrist, whatever it is. So if he can't damage it anymore and he's good enough to make a contribution, send him out there. Now, he could re-injure it, re-injure it in the first 10 minutes. Yeah. Or he could end up being the MVP of the finals because they're going to win three straight. He's that good. Who knows? I hope the Raptors win tonight. Yeah, I I think that uh, many Raptor fans in the city of Toronto and everyone else get a little nervous if they lose tonight. And this is always the 3-1 thing because then you would have to, especially if you're the home team, you got to go back to their city and that becomes tough, and then all of a sudden you're home for Game 7 and no one has any fingernails left, which could either be the greatest night ever or not. So, yeah, tonight would be a good night to win. Well, the other MLSE team, Major League Sports team, had two chances to win one game and didn't do it Yep, against Boston. Yep. So you never, ever, and, and here's, let me tell you what I do know, because I've been in a lot of situations like this. The toughest... Um, the toughest game you ever have against anybody is an elimination game because they are leaving everything out there. Especially a team that's won before. And they know how to win. And so tonight, without Kevin Durant, would have been their most difficult game to win. You have to unthrone the king. And now the they're bringing in their best player back. What does it do? I don't know. Well, and now it's not like Kirk Gibson's got to go up and just hit, swing once, swing once and knock it out of the park. Uh, Steve Kerr again, rap, uh, Golden State's head coach. There's just more tweets coming in and more information coming in. Uh, here's a quote: "We'll start him and play him in short bursts," which doesn't sound like he's healthy. It sounds like this is a we have to play him because we got nothing left, no other bullets left in the chamber, and we have to throw everything at them. It almost makes you wonder if Golden State, well, I was going to say if Golden State doesn't win this game. Even if Golden State, if they don't win this game, they're out. And if they do win this game, though, you wonder if Kevin Durant is going to be healthy enough to play game six. Well, it, it'll all come down to the injury. It'll, it'll all come down to how much damage it's going to do and how healthy it is. And again, if it's not going to do any permanent damage, what's the point in, what are you saving them for? Well, but you wonder about Kevin. Here, this is Winner such, go home. I know, but this is such an interesting thing about modern sports because Kevin Durant is an unrestricted free agent after this year. And he is in line for a gigantic contract because the New York Knicks, who are desperate for star power, are trying to get him. And if you're Kevin Durant, how willing are you to play on something that is not good? Knowing that you have a huge contract waiting for you, assuming you don't do permanent damage. And I don't care what doctor you are, doctors can advise you, doctors can give their best guess, but no doctor could say to you, Don, that if you've got a damaged calf that you couldn't possibly do something severe to No, but they can give you odds. They They, can give you odds. They can say the odds are very slim that you're going to do anything more than restrain it or anything. You're not going to blow it out. But if you were him. They're not doing calf transplants yet. (laughs) You did kill one of your calves out there. Not yet. Uh, after the last week walking the, the up and down <laughs> in the hills, I've got calves that could be in models, could be in a magazine, but only for the next few days till they f- I got, go slack I again. I got no comments on calves. Um, no, I, if you were him and you've got an injury, whatever that injury is, and you know that waiting for you is 160 or $170 million, 
unless you do something really damaging to yourself. I, if nothing else, it's got, it's got to be in his head a little bit that if that if he starts feeling a tug or if he starts feeling that thing again, it, it's got to. Okay, how much money is it going to make him though? Looking at the other side of the coin, if he goes out there and brings them back, zero. Really? Zero. Because he, there is only so much you can make in the NBA. There's a percentage of the salary of a, if a team's budget, if a team's salary cap, and if you are not a re-signing player, he, no matter where he goes, he is getting the same amount of money. Well, so, he, no, he could stay in Golden State. They can pay him more. That's what I'm saying. But if he stays in Golden State, they're yeah. going to pay him that more anyway, no matter what he so does it's only tonight. only so much more they can make. And if he goes to New York, he's going to make this, whether he scores zero points or 50 points tonight, it's not going to change a thing. He is maxing out wherever he goes. I So you, you'll know this because you know lots of stuff I don't know. Um, I'm told Kawhi Leonard can make $80 million more if he re-signs in Toronto than he can make under free agency. I don't market. think it's that much. But it's considerable. I think it was a forty-year contract. A forty-year? Yeah. 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 No. He, it's 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 not. I don't think it's that much. But it's it, it's a lot. Like he can make a, quite a bit more if he stays in Toronto. It with was the ES, way it's set up. It was ESPN guys. I heard talking about it on a U.S. sports show actually, and they said that's uh, Toronto's pr- a pretty nice city, and he likes L.A. He can buy a couple extra nice houses in L.A. with the difference. Well, how old is he now? Thirty. I can't remember. Kawhi Leonard is 28, 29, 30. Sure. So, okay, let's say he's 30. Does if a five-year deal, six-year deal? If you stay for six, let's say you sign a six-year deal and it's for 35 or $40 million a year. Let's say, round numbers, let's say he signs for $250 million. I don't think it'll be that much. When you're 36 years old, you can retire and go spend the rest of your life kind of wherever you wherever want. you want, doing whatever you want. Or you turn away 40 or 50 or 80, whatever the number is, million dollars. If I'm playing for the Baghdad team, I might say I'll stay in Baghdad for an extra few years for that kind of money. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Sounds like my plan when I retire when I'm 82. I'm move to Baghdad? No, I'm just going to move to the nicest nursing home that'll take me. Have you figured out which one that is yet? No. Have you started putting in the applications in? Because you know, it may take them a while to vet you. I'm looking around. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get older this week, too. Why is that? Well, when you have birthdays. Oh, is it a birthday? I didn't know if, like, the stress from the Raptors. I didn't know. We were talking about the Raptors. No. I didn't know. Well, my, my hair's going to go gray. So uh, when is the birthday? Uh, Wednesday. Wednesday. Well, happy birthday. Thank you, Scott. Next Monday... Anybody who have get, has gifts that they wish to send in can send them just care of 900 CHML and we'll deliver them to Dawn here on the air. As leave long as they don't tick or have white powder in them. <laughs> leave them in the lobby. It's not, not that big a lobby, though. Yeah. We've seen when the toy drive comes in for yeah. Christmas. There's only so much. So we may have to have two lobbies <laughs> just for the gifts that will come in for Dawn. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. In studio with Don Robertson. As we are every Monday at this time from 7 till 8, tomorrow evening, you know what tomorrow evening is? Game 7. Game 7. I bet you, and this may be the first time this has ever happened, and the circumstances are to, expl- to exp- at, are behind this. Let me get my words out. Uh, I don't know that 25% of people in Canada right now knew would have known that tomorrow night was Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals, and I bet you that's the first time that's ever been. I just don't think... Unless you're a real diehard Boston fan or the seven St. Louis Blues fans that exist in Canada, I don't think you care right now. 
St. Louis have a lot of um, um, Canadian players, so seven's low. It's okay, probably beyond double, their family double and friends. digits. Um, yeah. I would bet you that when this thing all shakes out, that the NBA audience, um, the drop in the NBA audience in the U.S. for the uh, Raptors and Golden State series will be mirrored in, in uh, Canada by uh, Boston, St. Louis. Like, I'll bet you, the like, there'll be the least amount of interest in the NBA Finals there's been in a long time because it's a Canadian team, sadly. You mean south of the border? South of the border. Yeah. And north of the border will be the same way with Boston and St. Louis. How many people have you heard talk about this final series? The, the hockey? The Bruins? Yeah. When you're walking around, do people come up? Because usually... All right, so I, fr- Friday night, I don't remember what I did Friday night. Anyway, uh, oh, I went, I was, I went golf nine and nine, and then Saturday night I was out at an event, and yesterday I was at the Canadian Open, and a grand total of all three of those nights where I was out in public, nobody mentioned the Stanley Cup Finals. And when was the last time that would have happened? Never, never in my lifetime. The the having a game seven of a Stanley Cup Finals, and having absolutely no buzz around here to me is unprecedented. It really is. I'm a Look at I'm I'm a long way from um, anybody that thinks is an expert on the sport, but because I run the Real McCoys, and, and in part because I do this show, and you know, you, you, I know a lot of hockey people. It's invariably when the Stanley Cup Finals are on, people will come up and ask me what I think is going to happen and everything mm-hmm. else. Just give them a quick eight second analysis of it. So it's really unusual that there's no chatter. Like when I when I'm out. Nobody says anything. Nobody says, who do you think is going to win? Nobody cares. Everybody's talking about the Raptors. Yeah. Absolutely everybody. And I have no analysis on that. Would, do you, how different would you think it would be if the Raptors weren't in this? Like is Boston and, and, is Boston and St. Louis a series? See, I think people would still be watching, not in numbers like if there was a Canadian team in. I think people would still be yep. watching that just because it was the Stanley Cup Finals if the Raptors weren't in. Oh, I would, I would think, I would think viewership would be twice what it is. Here, here's a scenario that if, if, if the Toronto Maple Leafs had have won Game Six or Seven against the Boston Bruins, and had been fortunate enough to get to the Stanley Cup Finals, this, following the path that the Bruins took, yes, if they could have replicated the success the Bruins had after the Bruins beat them in Game Six and Seven. Can I, I can't imagine what would be going on in Toronto tonight with the Raptors game and Game Seven in Toronto. Can you imagine? I mean, it, it is impossible. You can't, can't to fathom imagine. it. You would have had the first time ever for the NBA Finals, and you would have had the first time in fifty years for the team that I don't even think, arguably, for the team that is the dominant team by a mile in Toronto. I mean, for all the love that the Raptors get, and good for them for all yeah. the stuff they're doing, and. Because there are other NHL teams around the country, you would not have had the same national love for the Leafs that you have for the Raptors. There's no other NBA team in the country, so it's okay to cheer for the Raptors in Vancouver and in Saskatchewan and wherever else. You would not have that with the Leafs, but in Toronto, it would I, it would have been, and, and around here. And I, I, I think um, the Raptors still would have been the second cousin. If the Leafs were in Game Seven tomorrow night, yeah, not across the country, but in this area, in, in yes. Toronto, yeah, oh, absolutely, no, absolutely, and that's not taking anything away. You've got history there. You've got a oh, ton of, of history. 
It is, uh, boy, you know, you can't, uh, when you realize, when I saw Boston won last night, you see it's going to game seven, and I fully expect now that at home Boston's going to win this, and besides the fact that apparently it is impossible to beat Tuka Rask in an elimination game. That guy's numbers, the goalie for Boston, mm-hmm. when they're in an elimination game, he's he never loses and never gives up a goal. I just, that, that was the first thing that came to mind, what you just said. What? What an opportunity lost for the Maple Leafs that this may have been the path that they had to get through. And and there's no guarantee that they would have. There's no guarantee no. that because Boston did it and they were the team that beat Toronto, if Toronto had beaten them, the same thing would have happened. But man, what an opportunity lost. It was just, it was the first thing that came to mind. Well, the only team, I think the only team that's beat Boston three games in the playoffs is St. Louis and Toronto. Yeah, well. I, I mean... There, there, there's no evidence that the Leafs couldn't have done it, but I just can't imagine. I mean, I'm sure the roar would have tipped the CN Tower over. I mean, I don't think you can make that much beer to keep up with the fans. What would have been especially amazing, and it probably would have been unprecedented, and they wouldn't have done it, just like the Canadian Open, just like Hamilton is the permanent home of the Canadian Open, you know, just throwing out ideas. Yep. The Raptors and the Leafs both win the championship and you have a combined parade. <laughs> you couldn't. There, there, would be, there, would there wouldn't be, nobody, be room. There would be nobody left in anywhere else in Toronto except along University Avenue. But there wouldn't be room for all the people. You'd have to have two. Well, you'd have to, it would have to be nine miles long to get people in there. You'd have yeah. to start in Etobicoke and go to Scarborough. <laughs> start in Stony It'd Creek. be the entire length of the Gardner Expressway. Yes, it would be fun. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening. 911.